Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us your baptized children, that we would be called children of God by the love that you have shown us. We pray that you would help us to live out our baptismal lives, daily drowning the old Adam through contrition and repentance and rising again to live a new life and holiness to you. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're just uh, picking back up with baptism. Um, We had our starting point, which was, what is baptism? Based on Matthew 28, it's to wash uh, with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To wash with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what baptism means, and when Jesus commands it. He commands that it be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water included in God's word, and uh, including God's command and combined with God's word, as uh, Luther says. And then uh, basically what we've been doing is looking at different Bible passages, uh, last week especially, um, that have to do with baptism. And uh, our presupposition about baptism, remember, uh, we always want to come back to this, is, is scripture alone. That's what it means to be a Lutheran, is to base what you believe on scripture alone. And so I thought it would be fun or uh, right, at least, to look at all the pertinent New Testament passages about baptism. And if there's others uh, that you think that I miss, make sure you tell me. Um, I'm not trying to pick and choose. I'm trying to get kind of hit all the main ones to talk about specifically about baptism. Uh, so last week uh, we talked about Matthew 28, um, which has a lot of aspects to it. Uh, one, it shows that the primary work of baptisms is uh, by the pastoral office. Um, Jesus goes up with his disciples on the mountain. Uh, talk, talk about the authority of Jesus that um, when uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, and then he commands the disciples to go do this. We know that baptism is coming from Jesus, right? So something that the Baptists will uh, bring against us is that um, you're saved by gra- you say you're saved by grace alone, right? By faith, faith alone, through grace alone. Um how is it then that baptism saves? Because baptism is an action. Baptism is a work, right? And we would say to that, baptism is a work, but it's not our work. It's God's work. God is the one who baptizes uh, through the pastor, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And then he delegates that um, to the pastor to act in his stead. So uh, baptism is a work of God. We saw that there. Um, baptism is part of how disciples are made, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and then teaching, right? Baptism and teaching go together. That's something we talked about. Um, yeah, so that, that was basically Matthew 28. Uh, looked at Matthew 3 then to kind of bookend that in Matthew's gospel with John the Baptist uh, and Jesus' own baptism. Um, we saw how the, the progression of baptism from um, purity cleansing uh, in the Old Testament uh, to John the Baptist 
kind of this intertestamental figure in some ways, whereas a baptism of repentance and uh, then in the New Testament or in the time of Christ, um, then especially in Jesus' own baptism, uh, when he talks about fulfilling all righteousness, we see that it's a baptism uh, then of forgiveness, right? And that comes to fruition um, at Pentecost. Another passage we talked about. Um, did we talk? Yeah, we, did, we did talk about John three already, right? Yeah. Uh, did we? Oh, we didn't talk about John three. Okay. Thank you for keeping me honest. Okay. Well, in John three, um, in John three, he says uh, you must be baptized. Well, no, it's in Matthew three too. Um, no, yeah, that, that, that's where we talked about it. It's in both places, but um, in Matthew three, when John the Baptist. Uh, proclaims the coming of Christ's baptism, he says, there's one coming who will baptize you uh, with fire, right? Um, and that that's fulfilled at Pentecost. And then we looked at, um, that's the next place we looked, was in Acts 2 at Pentecost, where Peter, um, baptized, where, where Peter preaches and the people are cut to the heart and many are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. We also had that verse in Acts 2, um, that this gift of baptism, specifically, is for you and your children, right? So um, that's uh, our visitor who is here, Eric. He grew up Baptist, um, and he mentioned, and he, he, we talked about it afterwards, too. Uh, he'd never heard that verse before, right? So um, I don't know if that how common that is, but it it is true that when people talk about infant baptism and get worried about that. <laughs> that that might be one verse to bring up Acts, uh, in Acts 2 um, what verse is that? it's in thir- 37, 38 30, yeah 37 to 39 isn't that but uh, this gift is for you and your children they might not have ever heard that before so um, right alright so um, yeah and we talked in Matthew 3 as well about the uh, the atonement the great exchange Right, that when Jesus says this fulfill righteousness, we have that image of Jesus' righteousness going out into the baptismal waters, and Jesus um, standing in the baptismal waters, taking up our sin. Uh, he who became, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's Second uh, Corinthians three. Um, someone correct me on that. Um, all right, so uh, that's Matthew three, Acts two, um, Acts eight. We looked at is the urgency of baptism uh, with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch that because baptism is something that actually saves and because um, it's commanded by God for the faithful, uh, we do act with a certain kind of urgency with baptism, right? Um, when when babies are born, we want to get them baptized uh, in a timely manner, right? Depending on there, there are obviously individual cases and circumstances and whatnot that we want to um, that we can work through with with individual cases. But um, in general, we want to get babies baptized in a timely manner. If you think about something we're going to talk about in a little bit, Colossians two, baptism as the fulfillment of circumcision. Uh, when did circumcision happen in the Old Testament? Does anyone remember? Eight, eight days, yeah, eighth day. Yep. 
eight days afterwards, right, uh, for, for the babies. Um, and eight, the eighth day, that's symbolic of the new creation. Uh, seven days for creation, so eight day, the eighth day is the day of new creation. Um, the, so it's kind of a baptismal day. Our baptismal font has eight sides. Um, I was wondering if, anyone, if any of you would catch what I did on Sunday um, because we didn't have any names to read for the All Saints. I, I told Donna to read, ring the bell, had to pick a number. We did eight. Yeah. I was hoping you'd catch that. So um, did eight bell tolls. Uh, anyway, uh, so we – oh, the Acts 8 Ethiopian eunuch, urgency of baptism, right? There is an, there is an urgency to uh, – to baptism, right? That we want to uh, see those who are faithful be baptized. Um, we also mentioned there believers' baptism that faith and baptism go together, right? So that's another thing the Baptists will say is, uh, well, well, baptism is in the Bible. It's always people who believe, and we'd say, yeah, we just think infants can believe, <laughs> right? Um, infants can, you know, trust in their mother. Can't they also trust in their Lord? Uh, why wouldn't they be able to? Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. So, um, as Acts 8. And then finally, uh, Romans 6 is the one we left off on, um, which is the connection to Jesus' cross and resurrection, that baptism is this death and life, death and new life, right? Water drowns, but it also gives life. And when we drown in those waters, we drown the old Adam, um, that is dying to sin, just like Christ died with sin on the cross and uh, coming to new life again with him. Uh, That intimate connection between Christ's death and resurrection and baptism is our death and resurrection, uh, death to sin and uh, being raised again to new life. Um, And Paul connects that all to our daily life, right? So he starts out chapter six after finishing chapter five about the gospel. Wait, does this mean that we should just continue in sin that grace may abound um, because God's so gracious? No, in your baptism, you died to that life and you have a new life to live in holiness now, right? So um, that's what baptism gives us. We, you wouldn't, um, if you've already died to sin, you wouldn't live a different life, right? What is our Christian freedom for? It's not freedom to sin more. It's not freedom to just do whatever we want, knowing that, oh, we can just go get forgiveness later. Um, It's freedom to try and live the most loving life we can. Um, And, of course, we know that when we do stumble, when we do fall, uh, we will have that forgiveness as well. Um, That's why the contrition and repentance is also part of the daily life. All right, so that's where we left off. Uh, any questions before we kind of just pick back up and keep going here? Um, I realize I didn't actually grab my Bible for this, so let me do that real quick. Uh, you can think of any questions you have. What was the eighth day? No. New creation? He said new creation. Seventh creation, eight days, new creation. Any questions? All right. Good. <laughs> All right. All right. So the next one we're going to pick up on is Mark 16. 
16. 16, which is in the Catechism. Um, and there's a question. So we asked um, earlier, what is baptism? The next question that the book, Lutheranism 101, puts forward, um, and also that Luther basically asks in the Catechism, is uh, what is the power of baptism or what does baptism do? And this is where Luther says, um, so if you look on page, I, I think it's in the book. I was reading it earlier. Um, if you look on page 141, it quotes the second part of the baptism in the small catechism. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all believe this as the words and promises of God declare. And then Luther asks, uh, what are these words and promises of God? Okay, so where, where in scripture do we see that baptism forgives sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives salvation? Um, in other words, in short, where do we see that baptism saves? Um, and the verse he goes to is Mark 16, 16. So um, really quickly, I, I know we've already talked about this a couple weeks ago, but if it is in brackets in your Bible, um, you don't have to doubt that it is God's word. Uh, you can um, read the messenger article from this month for a detailed explanation of that, um, which goes into the um, two different traditions of Greek texts used to translate the New Testament. Um, but anyhow, uh, Mark 16, 16 is uh, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So uh, pretty simple. Uh, baptism goes along with faith. You can't separate these. Right. So belief and baptism, they go along together. And baptism there is a requirement in some sense of salvation. Um, baptism saves, right? Uh, it rescues, forgives uh, sins, rescues death and devil, gives eternal salvation, um, believes and is baptized, will be saved. Now, the question always comes up, does someone have to be baptized to be saved, right? We say baptism saves, baptism gives salvation. Um, even according to this passage, uh, faith and baptism, which again, are they go together, um, when someone has faith, they're, they're going to seek baptism. Um, in some sense, it's a requirement. Um, so the way that Lutherans have always dealt with this question, uh, does someone have to be baptized to be saved, is to say that baptism is uh, necessary, but not absolutely necessary. Now, that is a kind of oxymoronic statement uh, because necessary entails that it is absolute, but it is it is somewhat a paradox, although I think it's I think it's kind of understandable. Um, the example that I've heard to explain, or analogy that I've heard to explain this, is um, if there was a prisoner of war that was severely mistreated and you know barely uh, survived on some crumbs and like just a little bit of you know 
water that probably wasn't even the cleanest water. And at the end of the war, uh, they're, they're hanging on to life by a thread, and they are rescued. And someone says, did you have what was necessary for life? Uh, they would say, no, not really. Right? In one sense, they didn't have what was necessary to sustain life. Did you have what was absolutely necessary? Sure. Uh, if you want to be um, absolute about it, then, then yeah, I had what was absolutely necessary. The same is true with faith and baptism. So the only thing that saves at the end of the day is saving faith. And if someone has true saving faith, uh, they will be saved. That said, uh, baptism goes along with faith so closely that if someone has saving faith, we would expect them to seek baptism. We would we would expect uh, people to be baptized if they have faith. Um, and the majority of Christians uh, who go to heaven have baptism, right? And and that contributes to their salvation. Um, and because baptism saves, uh, baptism regenerates, baptism. Uh, gives new life, and that that's part of their salvation. Are there situations where someone is unable to be baptized when they come to saving faith, and they can still go to heaven? Yeah, sure. Like the thief on the cross, uh, stillborn babies. Um, there are situations where someone can have saving faith, never having the chance to be baptized, and that's fine. But um, there's a phrase that I really like to use that I've heard a pastor say before um, is we uh, we don't do theology by exception. And I think that's important because very often um, whenever someone wants to get around something that's difficult in the Bible, which I don't. I mean, I don't think baptism being salvific is that difficult. But if someone has a problem with baptism being salvific, um, and they want to get around it, they'll point to exceptions, right? They'll point to the thief on the cross. They'll point to stillborn babies and things. And it's like, well, that, yeah, that's fine, but that's that's the exception, not the rule, right? So let's do theology by the rule, not by the exception. And um, we can just say that baptism saves. Right. Anyway, uh, but the way this uh, relates to Mark 16, 16, it's actually implicit in the text that uh, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So salvation includes belief and baptism. But then what does condemnation include? It only includes unbelief. Right. It only includes unbelief. It doesn't include the lack of baptism. So the lack of baptism does not condemn but baptism does save. So uh, there, there's that kind of paradox there, um, implicit in Mark 16, that it's necessary but not absolutely necessary. right? Um, and we want to give uh, people what is – we want to give people a feast of salvation and mercy and grace. right? We don't, we don't want to give people just uh, crumbs and water to live on. right? Um, and you can even extend that. Some, uh, not so much with salvation, 
But you can extend that analogy to also uh, coming to church, hearing God's word preached, and the other means of grace, um, the Lord's Supper, and, and absolution as well, that a Christian who wants to have a strong faith, right, um, who's going to maintain a strong saving faith throughout their life is not going to try and do everything they can to get away with, right? They're going to try and get as much as they can, right? So they're not going to they're not going to try and have just what's barely absolutely necessary to get to heaven, right? A Christian with strong saving faith is going to seek um, as much as they can. Uh, of God's word and God's gifts. Okay. So that's Mark 16, 16. Any questions on that? All right. We'll look at another uh, passage quoted in the Catechism, Titus 3, through uh, 5 through 7. If someone wants to find Titus 3, 5 through 7. He says this, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who before on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Yeah, good, good. Um, so a couple things here. First of all, again, going back to Matthew 28, we have the question of whose work is baptism. So God saved us, not by anything that we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration, we're going to come back to that phrase, and the renewing of Holy, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. All right, who did the pouring out? Who did, the, who did the act of the pouring out of the water? God did, right? Um, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he poured out uh, on a, through, through Jesus Christ, um, poured out the washing of regeneration that we would be justified by his grace. So again, um, baptism is not a work that we do. It's a work that God does. It's a work that God does. Um there's this phrase, notice it doesn't say baptism, the washing of regeneration, the washing of regeneration. Uh, that word, the washing, is a word that in the Greek most commonly means bath, um, a bath of regeneration, if you will, or a bath of rebirth. Um, but it, it's clearly also, like baptism, a water word. And Paul does this um, if you think about communion, uh, there are different ways that the Bible and that we refer to communion, right? So we have communion, we have the breaking of the bread, we have the Lord's Supper, we have um, the uh, sacrament of the altar, is what Luther calls it in the Catechism. We have the Eucharist, okay? So there's, a, there's different ways to refer to sacraments is what I'm getting at. Um, And Paul will do this where he'll refer to um, a sacrament in different ways. Sometimes he'll just say baptism. Here he says the washing of rebirth. Um, He also does this. You don't have to go there. I can just do it real quick. But um, he does this in Ephesians 5. 
uh, 26 also refers uh, to baptism uh, in the term in the, with this word washing or bath of water by the word. Um, this is actually when he's talking about husbands and wives and how husbands and wives imitate Christ and the church. And he's talking about how Christ cleanses his church through the act of baptism. He says, I'll start at 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Washing of water by the word. What does that sound like? It sounds like Luther's definition of baptism, right? Um, Not just plain water, but water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Um, So Paul uh, will use this term uh, instead of baptizo. The word is lutron um, to refer to baptism. So uh, I think that's pretty clear. I don't know if anyone disputes that this is baptism, but um, I I mean, I think it's clearly baptism. It's a it's a bath of water by the word. What else? I mean, what else is he talking about? I don't know. I don't know what you what anyone would argue. But um, anyway, so uh, we have the bath, the, the bath of rebirth, the bath of regeneration. The washing of regeneration, um, which, by the way, there you get the connection of baptism specifically with this idea of regeneration that um, which we'll look at in John three, that baptism gives us a a change of heart, right? A a regeneration from above, a rebirth um, that we become someone new in Christ. Uh, and that goes to the salvation of, of baptism. What does baptism do? It saves us. How does it save us? Um, we have the image from Ezekiel, right, where God says he's going to take away our heart of stone, our sinful heart, and put in us a heart of flesh. That's what baptism does. It regenerates us. Um, and in John 3 specifically, it's a regeneration from above that uh, we get connected to uh, Christ's death and resurrection and um, are raised again to new life. Uh, it's a regeneration, a rebirth, um, where we get a new father, right, as well, and, and a new spirit. Uh, so the washing of regeneration um, in, in Titus 3 is great. What else do I want to say about Titus 3? Um, yeah, and the... Uh, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Um, this is a concept that I think is important. Um, Hebrews talks about Jesus becoming our brother, and um, we get the inheritance of eternal life. Um, we become heirs of eternal life. So who's the one who gives all life? The creator. Yeah, right? The creator gives all life. Uh, when we want to live eternally, um, who's the only one that can give that? The creator, because he gives all life. And who's his only son? Who's the only one who would get that inheritance? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so Jesus has the inheritance of eternal life, but by our baptism, what happens is, and you see this also in Matthew 3 with Jesus' own baptism, is that he becomes one of us, and he shares his inheritance with us. 
Sorry about the flies. They're <laughs> insane. I know. They're up here too. I, you're fine. Swat as much as you want. It's not. It's not going to bother me. Um. So we get this inheritance of eternal life. This. Um, and that's also connected to the language of uh, what Jesus gives us in the Lord's Supper, right? Um, he gives us his New Testament. What is a testament? Where do you hear that word in everyday life? Testify. Testify or someone's last will and testament, right? That Jesus is signing over to us his inheritance of eternal life. Um, so we get to share with Jesus in the inheritance of eternal life uh, through our baptism and then also in his supper. There you go. Okay. Just looking a little, like, stressed, you know. Uh, never know what's going to happen. All right, First Peter 3. Any questions on Titus 3? Taking notes. He's a good boy. That's what he's doing. All right. First uh, Peter three, eighteen to twenty-two is where we'll go next. All right, great. So there's a lot of things here. Um, again, uh, again, going back to Romans 6, uh, what is the foundation of our baptism? It's Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Christ suffered once for sins, uh, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. By the way, that verse 19 that Jesus went down and preached to the spirits in prison. That's our proof text for in the Apostles' Creed when we say that Jesus descended into hell. Um, that's where that comes from, that after Jesus was uh, put to death and he was in the grave, he descended into hell and proclaimed victory over the de- devil and his demons um, and, and then rose again from the dead. So that's, that's where we get that from. Um, Anyhow, uh, but then, okay, so he, he's talk, Peter's talking about Christ's suffering, death and resurrection. Um, and then automatically he uh, starts talking about Noah. This reminds him of the story of Noah. And he says, uh, this is, and this is where Luther gets the flood prayer from, which we talked about the first week, that uh, there were eight souls on the ark saved through water. This is an antitype or a foreshadowing um so the literal greek word um in the nkjv here is antitype uh try and do this quickly 
whenever we have a um, connection between the Old Testament and New Testament in the form of a story or an image, uh, we call this typology, that there's a type um, that is, if you think about the, the word type, um, it's kind of the form of something. And then something had that same form in the Old Testament then that it then foreshadows in the New Testament. The thing that had the form in the Old Testament is its antitype. So you have the type. The antitype looks forward to the type in the New Testament. So Noah and the ark is an antitype of baptism. Um, so anyway, just that's just if you have a translation that says antitype instead of foreshadowing. Uh, but it's the same basic idea. Um, now I got the flies up here. Um, yeah. So, but the the idea here is that the um, the water of the ark is what saved Noah. And uh, there were eight souls, right? Peter points this out on purpose. By the way, there were eight souls, right? He's He's uh, pointing out that number eight. Um, but so I think we kind of all talked about that. The, the, the thing that's really key here is in verse uh, 21, which now saves us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> baptism now saves us. Mm-hmm. So what does baptism do? It saves us. Uh, there's, there is salvation in baptism, right? And that's Mark 16 as well. Um, What's also great here is that he actually points out specifically that this isn't just some external reality, um, so but it's an internal reality. So he says, and I, I think this is important when you're dealing with the question of baptismal regeneration, not just as a removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Um, so what can give us a good conscience toward God being cleansed from sin? Uh, that's the only thing that can give us a good conscience toward God is being cleansed from sin, being forgiven of our sins. And um, you can't it's, – it's, he's saying it's not just a washing where you're washing dirt off the outer part of your skin, right? Not just a washing of uh, filth from the flesh. So when, when people say that baptism is just a symbol and that it doesn't save, um, what does it mean that it would be just a symbol? Uh it would mean that all it was was an external washing. But Paul, but Peter here says it's not just an external washing. It's a good conscience before God, which means that it has to do with the forgiveness of sins. It, it actually – he says it now saves you. Um, so again here, uh, it's, it's hard to see where some people get their baptismal theology um, if, not from, if it's not from Scripture alone because in Scripture alone – uh, it seems pretty clear here that it's not just a symbol, um, but it's actually a, a salvation, um, a forgiveness of sins. Okay. Any questions on that? Uh, we'll do Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. I like to, to uh, as if you've kind of noticed, I like to include... A little bit of the surrounding context for some of these verses. Um, one reason is because oftentimes when you're 
having conversations with people about uh, things in the Bible, they'll pick people, and you know, it's easy to do this. I'll, I'll, you know, everyone does this to some degree. It's easy to just pick and choose like one little verse out of here and there. Um, but it's always better to include a little bit of context so that we know, okay, what's the discussion going on here? Not just taking something completely out of context. The other reason um, to read a little bit of the context is if you ever get into memorizing scripture, which I highly encourage, um, it's good not just to memorize Bible verses, but to memorize a little bit bigger chunks. Um, be, uh, kind of because of what I was saying is that you, you get a lot more meaning when you have kind of the surrounding verses or surrounding discussion um, of, of something. So uh, it can be even more meaningful to have not just a memory verse, but memory passages as well. So um, anyway, I just thought I'd mention that while turning there. So Colossians 2, uh, 11 through 15. Someone want to read that? In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over, triumphing over them by the cross. Perfect. So, lots of stuff here. We have uh, the connection of circumcision. Uh, to baptism. I know that's a little Hold on. Um, we have the connection of circumcision uh, to baptism. Circumcision, if you remember, uh, was the Old Testament sacrament, if you will, if you want to use that language of Sacrament because it's a promise of grace attached to this physical act. Um, circumcision in the Old Testament was the sacrament that brought people into the covenant. So uh, something we talked a little bit about at after class last week, um, which I didn't look up the history of this, but Baptists will do um, – what do they call it? Instead of Dedication. dedications – you're talking about how Baptists will do ded- baby dedications instead of baptisms uh, for for babies who are born into families that are Christian and are you know ch- attend church. And what I said about that is that this is actually pretty common um, amongst all world religions that there's always some kind of uh, infant initiation ceremony. Um, If you will. And I think that is built into God's creation Um, that there's there's that you want to dedicate or or, um, initiate uh, the children born into families of this religion into that life. Um, And that 
I think is built into creation. Uh, God commands circumcision in the Old Testament uh, for for this uh, to show that they are of the covenant, uh, that they are God's covenant people. Um, so there's the old covenant, and then He's going to make the new covenant with them, right? We just talked about that in the Lord's Supper. Uh, God gives them the, the New Testament and the um, His New Testament in the New Testament, and so what Paul is saying here in Colossians is you had this Old Covenant uh, marking, initiation of, of the Old Testament people. Now you have a better circumcision. Okay, So you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this circumcision doesn't involve uh, what circumcision involved, which was a literal cutting of the, of the body, um, of the flesh. And when were you circumcised, uh, made without hands, putting off the body of sins by the circumcision of Christ? This happened, verse 12. And again, notice again the Romans 6 language here. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. So baptism is the new circumcision. It's the New Testament circumcision. It's also the New Testament purity washing, um, although that law is fulfilled. But this is also what brings people into the new covenant. Um, and so, again, that brings us back to that urgency of baptism that, look, if, if, if babies in the Old Testament were circumcised, why would babies in the New Testament not be baptized? Right? Those things just go together because it's part of the covenant. Um, and this is mainly how, just in case you're interested, um, in Presbyterian or in Calvinist uh, theology, this is mainly how they argue infant baptism. Um, because they don't hold as strictly, I think to their detriment, but they don't hold as strictly to baptismal regeneration, but they do hold strictly to the idea of covenant. And so um, they want to baptize people in the covenant uh, Anyway, that's a whole other discussion, but um, we do have common ground with them on this, at least, that that, that those who are what they call paedo-baptist, um, child, pro-child baptism in Calvinist circles, uh, argue on the basis of this, that it's part of the covenant, the new covenant, and so children should be baptized. But anyway, that's just a interesting fact for you. Um, okay. So again, notice, yeah, the Romans 6 language here that it has to do with burial and resurrection um, and that this is the circumcision made without hands. And um, also, I love this verse here, verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, uh, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So here he's talking about the devil and his demons again. And this is a language that Luther picks up in the small catechism that um, what, well, what we already read, uh, it rescues from death and the devil, right? And we, whenever we uh, live daily in our baptism, we drown the old Adam. So there's a um, victory, if you will, in baptism, which is the same. It's the victory of the resurrection. But we have this victory in baptism that we have that the devil's been defeated. Um, so we'll talk about this later. But 
or we can we can just kind of talk about it now, I suppose. Um, in the couple pages later in the book, there's on page 149 and 150, there's a section on making the sign of the cross. And making the sign of the cross is, it dates back, I mean, it's super old. Christians have been doing it for centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, But making the sign of the cross is a way, traditionally, to remember your baptism, uh, which is something we've already talked about a little bit. But uh, there are a number of places that you you can do this or are able to do this um, in the divine service. One of the places that people have traditionally crossed themselves, uh, we don't have it in the bulletin marked with the little cross with this, but one of the places that people have traditionally crossed themselves in Christian history is in the Lord's Prayer when we say, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. So uh, in the original Greek in the Lord's Prayer, that's at, it's technically deliver us from the evil one. It's um, a reference to the devil. Although, obviously, he's the father of all evil. Um, but we remember our baptism when we say deliver us from evil because we know that by our baptism, we have victory over the devil. We have victory over evil. Um, and so Luther says in the large catechism, um, when he's talking about that, he says, when you have, a, when you have young children... Um, just teach them, make the sign of the cross whenever you're afraid. And the meaning will fill in later for children. <laughs> uh, you don't have to, he, Luther says, you don't have to explain everything right now. Just teach them, whenever you're afraid, just make the sign of the cross. Because you have victory over the devil. Um, and, and you're safe and secure in, in your baptism. So um, anyway, that's, uh, we'll talk more, we can talk more about the sign of the cross later, but... Um, that, that's one place that I always think about that is deliver us from evil. Uh, is to remember, That's a time to remember our baptism um, because we have been delivered from evil in our baptism. Uh, yeah, so disarming the principalities and powers. That's a great verse there, Colossians 2.15. All right, let's uh, flip over to John 3. We'll just look at um, kind of around verse 5. So this is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and uh, obviously we have um, not too far from here, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's John 3.16. But before that, the context is that a Pharisee, Nicodemus, really smart Pharisee, um, he's one of the rulers, comes to Jesus in the night and says, look, it's obvious you're a teacher come from God. Um no one can do the things you do unless God is with him. And uh, Jesus says, unless one is born again, this is verse 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that literally uh, is the same word in Titus, uh, regenerated from above. Uh, regenerated from above uh, or born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, uh, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. What do you think he's talking about? 
right? So um, in all these places, Matthew 28, wash them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wash them with water. Um, all these other verses about baptism we've talked about and their connection to the Spirit, um, like in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Uh, it is clear here that the new birth Jesus is speaking of is specifically that new birth of baptism, um, right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, this is verse 6, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, do not marvel, as I said, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and uh, you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So this is a double entendre in Greek, um, by the way, in verse 8. This doesn't exactly have to do with everything we're talking about, but I'll just point it out. Um, the word in Greek for spirit is the same word for wind and breath. And so it's actually – it's hard to translate because Jesus is speaking in a double entendre here. Uh, he says um, – that which is born of the spirit is the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he says, he uses the same term again. Uh, the spirit blows where it wills, um, or the spirit goes where it wills, if you will. But uh, and you cannot hear the sound of it. And, but then he's also talking about wind as a way to talk about the spirit, because you can't hear the sound of the wind. And you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Uh, you also can't see the spirit. And you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. Except his point here is that when you're born again, you have the spirit. That's when you know where the spirit is. Because it's been born of the spirit. So that the people who are baptized, the person who's baptized, we know where the spirit is. It's in them. Um, so that's kind of his point there. And Nicodemus is confused. Uh, and Jesus says, look, if you can't understand these earthly things, are going to stand heavenly things. Um, I, I just like this a lot. But Nicodemus shows up again um, at the end of the gospel, right, to uh, help take Jesus to the tomb and anoint him. Um, so we know he comes to faith, uh, which is which is a good kind of that's John's book ending of things uh, there, if you will. Um Right. So anyway, uh, John 3, 5, baptism, water and the spirit. Uh, and again, regeneration. Um, yeah, I just I, I don't know how people don't um, see some of these things as baptism. Like the word the word baptized specifically is connected to the word water or to the under, to an understanding of water. And when Jesus talks about water, it's like, what else is he talking about? You know, so. Is that okay? Uh, just two two more quick ones here, and then we'll be done. Uh, Galatians. No, that's wrong. Galatians three, uh, verse Uh, so I'm interested in what your translation say on this. Mine says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
Mine says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves. Yeah, so that's a better translation. Um, the uh, word there is clothed, to clothe yourself, right? That's the, um, that's the verb there in, in the Greek is uh, to be clothed. So uh, those who have been baptized with Christ have been clothed with Christ. They've been uh, – Christ has, has put himself on them, right? So this is um, – first of all, I'll talk about some practical implications of this. But this goes back to what we talked about in Matthew 3, that Jesus fulfills righteousness for us, that he gives us himself. right? He puts himself on us. Um, he covers us up so that when um, God looks down from above to judge us, what does he see? Does he see our sin? No, he sees us covered up with Christ's righteousness. Um, and this is where the history of um, baptismal garments or baptismal gowns comes from. That uh, So I, I think I mentioned this in the early church. Uh, people would actually be baptized naked. Um, and this is what the job of ancient deaconesses were, which were widows who served the church, were that they would help the young women be baptized um, because, uh, because people were baptized naked. But the purpose was that you had the shame of Adam and Eve, right? And then you'd go down into the baptismal font and you'd come up again and they would clothe you with white robes. So you're going from the sin, the sin of Adam and Eve down into the waters, coming up again, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, clothed in white. Um, that also is uh, the history of funeral palls. So if we have a funeral here, we have a white funeral pall we put over the casket. Um, and we say, uh, we read this verse, Galatians 3.27, at the beginning of a funeral. Um, we read it all together. Actually, no, I think it's responsive. I think I say, for as many of you have, uh, have been baptized into Christ, or I can't remember how it goes. It's in the funeral, right? Um, I'll just look real quick. But uh, anyhow, that uh, we use that verse in the baptism, and we cover the casket in the white funeral pall to symbolize that this person was baptized, that they've been covered in white, um, right? So uh, that's a beautiful image there as well. Maybe it's not. So we, we read Romans 6 at the beginning, which is what I was thinking about, about baptism. We read that responsibly. I think there might be something with like the blessing of the funeral pall or something maybe at the um, at the uh, burial that has Galatians 3.27 in it. Um, so maybe I'm remembering that wrong. But anyway, regardless, uh, that's the image is that um, we've been clothed in Christ. You also see that in like, um, well, last, last week for all saints in Revelation 7, um, when you have uh, the saints coming out of the great tribulation clothed in white, that's washed white by the blood of the lamb, right? So this idea of white robes and being clothed in Christ, um, this is a very uh, strong motif or a strong type, if you will, throughout throughout Scripture. Um, yeah, so that, that one's good. Any questions on that? All right, we'll just do one one more. Um, I'm sure I'm probably missing some, but um, I think this gives you actually a pretty good idea of what we think about baptism uh, just by looking at all these verses. Um, 
And next week we should be able to run through a lot of just other little tiny things about baptism. But um, next week's not Thanksgiving. No, no, no. It's the week after. So um, yeah, we got one more week, so that'll be good. We can finish. We can probably actually finish up everything else. It's like the Bible is like really rich or something, and uh, actually like describes what we believe. It's amazing. Um, so Ephesians 4, verse 5. Ephesians 4, 5, um, and we'll start, I'll start at verse 4. There is, we had this uh, in a sermon just a couple, some few weeks ago. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and uh, in, and in all. And in, my translation says, and in you all. That's not how I memorized it. So it's a it's a plural um, second person plural yeah y'all well see the thing is grammatically grammatically every other language has a second person second person plural so it makes sense to have a second person plural um, the southern people know what they're doing because uh, it doesn't make sense to have you be both singular and plural that's just it's just confusing so might as well just say y'all um, I would translate that on like Greek exams in college because my professor was from Texas, so he appreciated it. Yeah. Is that why when you're reading the Bible, it'll say peoples, like it's plural? Yeah. Well, peoples is just the plural of people. Um, but well, people. But people is a group, so it is. There's a singular there's aspect. More than one group. Yeah. Oh, so peoples is more than one group. Yeah. Um. Um, all right, Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5. So um, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So uh, as I preached about this a couple weeks ago, this is about the Catholicity or the universality of the church that um, there's only – that there's an invisible church. All true Christians are part of the invisible church, and baptism goes along with that, right? Uh, baptism – we're baptized into the body of believers, uh, so in the baptismal service, um, we will say we have this thing, and I shouldn't have closed that page because it's right next to it. Um, in the baptism service, confirmation, baptism, here we go. After someone's been baptized, uh, we ask the congregation, um, we say this, in holy baptism, God the Father made you a member of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and an heir with us of all the treasures of heaven. In the Holy Christian and Apostolic Church, or we could even say Catholic and Apostolic Church there, um, if we wanted to use the original sense of that word. We receive you in Jesus' name as our brother or sister in Christ, that together we might hear his word, receive his gifts, and proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the congregation says, Amen, we welcome you into the name in the name of the Lord. So there is this uh, congregational or... Um, Catholic uh, or uh, Christian church aspect of baptism that uh, we're baptized into the body of believers. Um, or if you think about the ark, right, that the we're baptized into the ark of salvation, being the holy Christian church, um, the, we're, the person who's baptized is brought in onto the ark. Um, so there's that. The other thing to say about this is 
Paul is very specific that there's only because of that, because that baptism in the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit is into the invisible church, not into a visible church, then there's need. There was only need for one baptism. Right. So when other people come in from other denominations, if they've already been baptized, we don't say, oh, you need to be rebaptized. Right. To prove yourself or something like that. No, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Right. Your baptism is valid. Um, I was baptized in a Presbyterian church when I was five years old. Um, and it was uh, funny because when we had the Presbyterian pastor over for dinner one night, um, we have all our baptismal certificates up on the on our wall in our dining room. And he was like, they haven't changed it. We still use the same certificate. So, um, yeah. Uh, anyway. It goes back to what we said. But now, do some churches? But there are churches. Yeah, so there there are churches that make you get rebaptized, which is it's funny to me that the churches that make you get rebaptized, the churches that insist on a certain way of doing baptism, are also the ones that say, but baptism doesn't really matter because it's just a symbol. (laughs) It's like, well, which way is it? Is it does it matter or is it not? Right. That's what I'm here for. Um, yeah, and it also has to do with something we mentioned a couple times through here, is that um, baptism is not a work of man; it's a work of God, right? So, um, God's the one who baptizes, uh, regardless of um, you know what church it's done in or or what pastor does it. All right, I'm five minutes over time. Any uh, final questions, thoughts, concerns? You have something? It's about to. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have baptized us as your children. Uh, we pray that you would continue to deliver us from the evil one as we go throughout our daily lives. And we pray that our lives may evidence the working of the Holy Spirit in us that you have given to us through our baptisms that we may lead holy lives according to your name and we pray that you would continue to be with all of us as we go throughout our days and weeks give us your protection and give us your comfort and give us your mercy and grace we pray this through your son jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with you in the holy spirit one god now and forever amen Amen.